So to, this morning, we're going to be talking about longings. And I thought, you know, a helpful way to tie in the family meeting and these longings that we have in our hearts is um, if you've ever had uh, Judy Berry bread, um, then, you, then you know what d- desiring food is really all about, okay? The longing to have Judy Berry bread, right, is real. Um, if you've not, again, sign up, come tonight, um, because you'll actually get to figure out what it's all about. Longing for food, for lasagna is a great thing. Um, I'm sure that there are many Lions fans in here who are longing for an NFC championship. Can I get an amen? Amen. So longing is all about yearning for something. It's a physical response to a hope or a desire that has an emotional bent to it. Our hearts desire things. We want things. We hope for things. And longing and yearning is something that is natural to us when we see something outside of ourselves that we want to move towards and go for. Longing moves from the time we're little to just having kind of these natural impulses of wanting food to wanting friendships. As we grow up, adolescence and mature, even into young adulthood, those longings Longings begin to take form in what God has desired and wired us for, um, designed and wired us for, which is to have a longing for intimacy, for companionship, for relationship, and ultimately for marriage. Those longings, as you think about, if you can remember a time in your life where you were thinking about getting married from the time you're a teenager until the time you're a young adult, if you think about those relationships that you desire, you begin imagining what he or she will be like, how you will meet what the interactions will be like. You could potentially even imagine yourself dating and courting and engagement, and you have a longing for those kinds of interactions and a longing for that kind of relationship. And if you imagine the wedding day, right? You imagine the wedding night and all of these longings and yearnings that we have in our lives and in our hearts are good longings. They're godly longings. God has designed us and he's wired us for relationships and for companionship. And in this morning's passage, in the Song of Solomon, we are going to be interacting with some of these longings. There's really going to be kind of two parts where we're going to see longing within relationships and longing without relationships. And as we interact with those things, we're going to really see some longings that come out. And I think that we're going to be challenged and convicted and hopefully comforted by looking at how Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of all of our longings and desires. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to find Song of Solomon, chapter three. We're gonna be in the first 11 verses of Song of Solomon. Uh, If you don't have a physical copy and you want a physical copy, go ahead and look on a seat underneath you. There should be one in the row in front of you. There should be one that you can find and grab. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, For the rest of you, physical, digital copy, Song of Solomon, chapter three, as you still continue to find your way there, I just wanna recap for us where we've been. We've been going through the Song of Solomon Uh, There are many new young couples, young families. Uh, There are young individuals who are dating and engaged. There's just young people coming to grace, which is a huge blessing that God has brought to us, but we want to steward this well. And so we wanted to go through the Song of Solomon in order to help understand what God's design and desire is for this sacred garden or this sacred intimacy that he's given us in relationships. And last week, we talked about three ways to tighten up your relationship or three ways to tighten up your marriage. And so in that, one of, the, one of the ways that you could tighten it up was to actually catch foxes. And there were seven foxes that we talked about last week. And I got many messages throughout this week, even, even one text message that said, bro, I got like six out of seven foxes. And I was like, you're gonna wanna take care of that, right? So, so come get counseling, right? Come get encouragement and support and help. So we're just finding that there are some practical tools that this 
poetry actually gives us if we're willing to analyze it. And this morning, we're going to be looking at longing. So if you found your place, Song of Solomon, chapter 3, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read God's word for us this morning. So here at Grace, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. And we read, believing that simply reading the word of God will begin to change our hearts. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, says this. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them. When I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that coming from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with, with myrrh and frankincense, with all fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we unpack it, let's pray this morning. Father, we come before you this morning, and we are grateful for your word. Father, you and I both know that I sin, that I fall short of your glory often, and yet I thank you, Jesus, that you are my righteousness, that I have nothing good to offer this morning save you and you alone. And so I pray that you would exalt yourself among us and make much of yourself, magnify yourself, Jesus, that we would see you and worship you as our king. Spirit, I pray that you would fill and empower me now in order to speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word for the accomplishment of your will, for the encouragement of this body and the advancement of your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that as we interact with your word, that you would comfort, that you would convict, that you would transform all of us into your likeness. We pray all of this in your mighty name and all God's people said, amen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the four longings of sacred love. Four longings of sacred love. And really, the first two longings we're going to see in the first five verses. And then we're going to see the next two that come really in this latter portion. And what we have here is kind of like a dream world that takes place where we have this gal who's running around at night trying to find her husband, trying to find the one whom her soul loves. And then after that, we have this picturesque wedding scene. And if we take time to really understand the longings that are in our hearts and we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with the text, I believe we're gonna be challenged and convicted by them. So four longings of sacred love. The first longing is for companionship, longing for companionship. In verses one through three, again, we see this Shulamite, Solomon's bride, desiring him, looking for him. And what we see in the first verse is that she says, on my bed by night. So this phrase by night is actually repetitive. If we actually were to translate it, uh, the literal would be night after night. It's a better way of understanding that this is like a reoccurring dream for her. And, and what we actually read about is actually more of a nightmare. If you think about where she goes from, she goes from her bed 
She, she has, she's having these uh, dreams and these longings, almost these fantasies about her beloved, the one whom her soul loves. She wakes up in the middle of the night in a panic, kind of in a terror, fear, and she reaches around the bed, she can't find him. So then what does she do? She goes out to the street. And here's what's interesting. If we consider what she's actually experiencing, it's actually anxiety of loneliness. She's fearful of being alone. And if we actually consider how loneliness works within our relationships, we're gonna find that there's not only loneliness outside of relationships and the fear of being alone, but there's also loneliness that can be experienced even within marriage itself. Our heart's desire is to know others intimately and truly and deeply. And our heart's desire is also to be fully known by others, fully known and also fully accepted and loved. That's our heart's longing. There's a desire. And we see this in that she says, night after night, I sought him, I sought him, I sought him. I'm seeking. Five times in three verses, she uses the same word, seek, sought, look. It's the same exact word. And that repetition should tell us that she is frantically searching and looking for love. She is looking for the one whom her soul loves. And in that desire, that longing for companionship, we again find that there can be loneliness in relationship and there can be loneliness outside of relationship, even in, in, in singleness. So let's talk about these two things. If we think about fear and anxiety and how that can grip us when it comes to loneliness and being alone, this is a real fear. So many couples uh, have experienced a lack of intimacy and a lack of connectivity, and there is an anxiety that can be created. There's a separation. So here's how I wanna talk about this. Loneliness in relationship. We, we know that there is a phrase that says, uh, absence makes the heart grow, what? Fonder, fonder. And, and there is a fondness that she is having a desire and, and a desire for intimacy, but there's separation that's taking place. She is desiring to be in an in, in intimate relationship and it's not there. And so she's looking and searching for it. And in this, in this section here, we again see this loneliness in the relationship, but if we broaden it to just consider loneliness in general, I think there's two ways that this applies, even in marriage, even in relationships. Number one is checked out dudes or checked out dads. That's number one. This is how loneliness can happen within a marriage. Either through physical absence, where work is your God, and everything that you do for work, it takes primacy over any other interaction in your life. All of your identity comes from it, all of the benefits that you get from it, all of the accolades and praise and awards that you get from it end up replacing the primacy of the marital relationship in your life, and your work replaces your wife. That can happen, and it does. I've counseled and coached couples that this is actually a problem. But it isn't only physical absence. There's also being physically present, but emotionally unavailable. And this happens more often than we care to admit or even know. When you are emotionally absent while even being physically present, it's your hobbies, your vices, your devices that can all remove your emotional relationship from interacting with your wife, your fiance, your girlfriend, you're emotionally unavailable, you're distant, you withdraw. You withdraw within yourself. And this is a problem within marriages. I've seen this, I've interacted this, where guys, I have to coach them, you need to be emotionally invested in your bride. This is, this is the wife that is looking and searching and looking and searching and you're just not available. You're not present. You're, you're there, but you're not really there. You're home, but you're not really home. You're checked out. 
This is a problem in, in, the, in the research that I was doing, in the study that I was doing, I saw how emotionally absent fathers in particular, emotionally absent, uh, absent husbands can wreak havoc within their households. It's almost better in some of the statistics for them to not be there at all than for them to be there, but not actually tuned in. So this should be a challenge for those of us who when we get home, we just want to check out. We just wanna check out. Your main responsibility and your main ministry, if you are married, is to your wife. And if you are not available emotionally to engage, to ask her what's going on, how's she doing, checking in with her, this is the kind of frantic anxiety that can lead to loneliness within a marriage. You're checked out. You're not here. You're here, but you're not here. The call would be for you to not only recognize your emotional absence, but then to tune in and emotionally invest. And, and here's how this, this works. In a marriage, your wife will begin to say things. She will start to tell you what's going on. She will, she will say, you need to do this. You need to do that. Now, those kinds of demands as I've worked with couples, can be perceived as disrespectful. She's trying to get you to clue in to something is absent in her heart. It's you being emotionally available, being actually present to be able to actually lean in and listen to her heart. There are longings she has that are going unfulfilled, and our responsibility is to hear it, not get defensive, but to actually press into that and say, tell me more. How can I be more available for you? Again, marriage as a picture of the gospel should tell us as men that we are called to sacrifice over and over and over. Most times, guys think, great, I'll sacrifice in an ultimate sense. I'd die for you. It's like, well, show me you would die for me ultimately by dying for me in the small ways. What are you willing to give up in order to be present with me? Checked out dudes and checked out dads. This is a way that this fear and anxiety in this loneliness can be experienced in relationships. Number two, loneliness in companionship also produces sexless marriages. It produces sexless marriages. This kind of loneliness is a lose-lose scenario, and oftentimes the emotional absence or the physical absence leads to this kind of marriage. God has not intended your marriage to be sexless. God would not have made sex feel so good if it were only just for procreation. We also, just by the way, wouldn't have an entire book of the Bible filled with erotic poetry about sex and intimacy if God didn't think it was pretty good. In fact, in the beginning, God said when they came together, it was very good, very good. When, when I interact with couples, there can be this reality that's presented of a sexless marriage. This is not a God-honoring marriage. Now, really quickly before I share kind of an, uh, an illustration about this, is to think about some of the nuances. There are, there are seasons where things can be difficult most of the time through health, most of the time through health. And that's understandable. But outside of an understood reality that makes it near impossible for, for intimacy and engagement within your marriage, there should be often and frequent sexual intimacy within marriage. That's how God designed it. There was a famous volleyball player uh, named Gabby Reese, and she put out a memoir just over 10 years ago and in that memoir, she shared about her marriage. She, the only reason I know about her was because she was married to a guy named Laird Hamilton. Laird Hamilton was a famous big wave rider. And if you were in and around the surfing scene at all, you knew big, uh, Laird Hamilton because he surfed some of the biggest waves in the world. They got married. You have two top athletes 
who are wired like alphas, both of them. And in their marriage, Gabby Reese explains in her memoir that she kept trying to be the alpha. She kept trying to be dominant. She kept trying to be right. She kept trying to lead. And what she came to the conclusion was, and this is her words. This is what she says. She aimed to be in order to repair their marriage. She said, I realized that I needed to be submissive and try to have sex with my husband every 48 hours. Now, none of the men who are married in here are gonna say out loud, but I heard all of their hearts said, amen. <laughs> right? But, but here's what she said. She said, sex in marriage is like exercise. You don't always feel like it, but it makes you healthy. Healthy bodies move and exercise makes for healthy bodies and even in marriage. Movement, movement, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, leads to healthy marriages. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is great. But here's what she says. As a woman, I realize to be feminine means to be soft and receptive and get this, wait for it, submissive. Those are her words. What should be very shocking to us is to actually realize that she is not a Christian. She's not a believer. What she doesn't know is that 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, do not deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex within marriage is a weapon. It is a weapon that's used to defend your marriage against the attack of the enemy. That you're called to actually not deprive. Deprive means you remove. You deprive food from a child, what happens? They wither and you go to jail. <laughs> but if you, deprive, if you deprive sex within your marriage, don't expect your marriage to not wither. It is natural, it is godly, and it's part of the design. It's part of a gift that he's given us. Paul says... Only for a limited time, you devote yourselves to prayer. If this is not a regular and often occurrence, you had better be a prayer warrior, fasting all the time. You, you better look like Mother Teresa. But here's what I end up seeing. Instead of recognizing that this is us coming together as a team in order to provide something for one another that God has blessed and called good and designed for, we use it as a weapon against one another. You're not treating me right, so you're not gonna get that. That's how the world acts. That's not what God has called us to do within marriage. Emotional absence is a problem that leads to loneliness within relationship. Sexlessness in marriages is a problem that leads to loneliness. That you would deprive one another from this is not a picture for the world of what God says is good and godly and right. And it certainly mars the picture of the gospel that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. That men are supposed to sacrifice themselves for their wives. And, and to the fellas in here, if that is, if I'm maybe speaking, right, too directly, right, to your marriage, where there is sexlessness, you might want to consider for yourself, just for a second, that there might be habits and patterns within your own life that are leading your wife to actually become more closed off to that desire you have. It would be it would be your responsibility to pursue, to seek out in order to open that conversation up that she would feel safe, but also to the wives, that does not mean that sex is something that you earn by good behavior 
in marriage. That's not what Paul says. Man, I'm going to get emails. What we see in this interaction here, in this poem, she is talking about loneliness and longing and desire for the one that she loves. That fear and that anxiety that, she, that we see her express that would drive her out into the streets, which for a woman at this time in this culture was dangerous. You don't run outside at night. She's in a city. You don't, you don't do that really even today in major cities. She's in Jerusalem. She's running out of her house, going to find the one that she loves. The watchmen are the only ones that see her. They're worried for her, so they pursue her. And even in that, she is expressing and she's revealing to us that there is a desire for companionship. And loneliness can happen within relationships. And that is a way that we need to call one, one another together in order to honor God with our relationships. Loneliness in marriage but there's also not only loneliness in relationship and in marriage, there's also loneliness in singleness. This gives us a perfect blueprint to understand that there can be a right fear and, and it can lead to ungodly anxiety about who it is that you would marry. You think about all the dreams and the hopes and the wishes of who it is that God would bring into your life. Again, we're seeing her desire someone. The desire is good and godly, but in singleness, Right In singleness, in the same exact passage that we just talked about where Paul addresses married couples, he also addresses singles. But the way that he confronts this with singles and the way he talks about this is actually counterintuitive for most of us. I think sometimes in the church, we like to elevate marriage as if somehow if somebody's married, then they're more godly or they're living at a higher status. That's not true. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus was single. Paul was single, and Paul told the church in Corinth, if you're not married and you burn with passion for one another, then you need to get married because you will fall into sin. But if you're not married and you can control yourself, then it is far better that you remain single. Why? Because the mission in marriage is to, is to hold high the picture of the gospel, and the mission in, in loneliness and, or in singleness is to actually hold high the gospel in your singleness. Both married people and single people still have the same goal, which is to glorify God and to point to him. And what Paul is saying is, you can do it more effectively if you don't have to worry about bills and children. If you don't have to worry about all the anxieties that come with the trappings of a home, you don't have to worry about that stuff. So what we need to understand is, those who are married are not somehow better or first-class citizens in the church, and those who are single are not second-class citizens in the church. That's not at all what Paul talks about. He says that this is a gift and this is a gift. You got different gifts. In all of these, you must honor God in your singleness and in your marriage. And so he's pointing all of us to missional advancement. If your marriage is not reflecting the gospel and you're looking, for, you're looking out for yourself in your marriage, you're gonna mar the picture of the gospel for everybody else who's wanting to see what unconditional affection and love looks like, what sacrifice looks like, what giving up stuff in your life looks like for your wife. You're going to mar that image, and in your singleness, if you are becoming more and more fearful and anxious about your loneliness, you will not be able to properly and effectively focus on advancing the gospel. So, so what then? For the single, the loneliness that you would experience should actually drive you in humility to receive from God that gift, whether it's for a season or for a lifetime, right? Some singles, you think like, okay, I got this gift. Um, I'm not sure that this was meant for me. You know, that doesn't feel like a gift sometimes. You know, you're thinking, is there a gift receipt? Can I take it back, right? But here's what you need to know. That is a gift that was given by Jesus to you. And I don't know if you've ever given somebody a gift, right? 
and then they open it, and then, oh. Singleness is considered a gift. Marriage is considered a gift. If all is gift, then all of us need to work to understand how do we glorify God and honor the Lord Jesus Christ with the gifts that he's given us. In your singleness, you ought to be pursuing wholeness and maturity in Christ and looking at all of the available time around you. And rather than using that for yourself, use it for the advancement of the gospel. We know, those of us who are married know, you don't have as much free time. And there are more anxieties, even what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that can fill your life. My daughter came to me not too long ago. She looked at my beard and said, Daddy, you have gray in your beard. And I was like, yes, I have six of them. And they're named after each of my six children, right? <laughs> There's a little more than six now. But now you know, as a single, you can busy yourself with the work of the Lord. That's what Paul is pointing to. He's saying, you can go get after it in a way that all these married, married people can't. So you can, so go get after it. But, but for all of us, whether you're single or married, all of us have a longing for companionship. And for those who are single, who are prayerful about who it is that God would bring into your life, it's good and it's godly to have that. But where we would transgress is when we start demanding from God or getting angry with God about the season that we're in. And so for all of us, we need to look upward to Christ. Longing for companionship is what we see exhibited here. In the first three verses, we see her describe how she desires and searches about for her beloved. And in verse four, we see the second sacred longing, and that's a longing for intimacy. Look at verse four. She says, scarcely had I passed them by. Those are the the watchers. She said, when I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go. I held him, and I would not let him go. She says, not only I held him and would not let him go, but she said, until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. All right, let's, let's try and understand this. I held him and would not let him go. Guys, here's a reality that we need to understand. Her desire for companionship drives her to a place where when she does find the one that her soul loves, whom her soul loves, when she finds him, the first interaction is not about intimacy. It's not about sexual intimacy. The first interaction is about belonging together. She says, I held him and I wouldn't let him go. I don't know if you've ever been like long distance in relationship. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of being separated for a time. But when you come back together, that is exciting. It's exciting to just be together, be next to one another. There is a longing that she has that she desires to simply be a part of one another. Um, then she says, I wouldn't let him go until what? Until I had taken him to my mother's house? Now let's just be honest here, guys. <laughs> when I read this, I was like, take him to my mom's house? What? And then it gets like weirder, into the chamber of her who conceived me. Now I can think of a few places that are probably a little more romantic than like mom's bedroom. Like, oh, I found you, let's go to my mom's house. Like, what? And be like, uh, let's go to Motel 6 before mom's house. You know what I'm saying? But, but what, is, what is going on here? Why would this be something that would be like, yay? All right, so it's gonna get a little warm. All right. I held him and wouldn't let it go until I brought him to mom's house. This is not actually what it's saying. This is actually, in Hebrew, there are par- parallelisms, and that's what's happening. So she, parallelism is when you say the same thing in different ways. Brought him to my mother's house 
the chamber of her who conceived me. Okay? She is veiling the act of intimacy within marriage within these words. How? Literally, this reads, I brought him into possessive my mother house. All right. What does that mean? Uh, I brought him into the chamber. What does this mean? Where does the chamber of motherhood reside? Where does conception happen? She's talking about the womb. Yes. So she says, I brought him home. So if anybody's ever been long distance for a minute and you're married and you get home, all the guys in here, you know, married dudes, it's good to be home. All right, picking up what I'm laying down, good. So, to desire passionate reconnection within marriage is good. Sometimes it's, it's just good, and that's exactly what she's describing. She's been having these dreams at night, night after night, these longings that were unfulfilled, and some of the commentators who discuss this are talking about daydreaming, uh, fantasizing within a marital context and looking forward to being reunited together. Again, God's word gives us and paints in poetic language and beautiful, somewhat mysterious terms, what is good and right and godly within marriage. It's good to dream about one another when you're apart from one another. It's good. Longing for intimacy is good. Longing begins early on in life, thinking about who my future husband or who my, who my future wife will be. And this longing still continues within marriage, thinking about one another. But as as she progresses from longing to fulfillment, all of this kind of gets a little bit warmer. Even as we're talking about in here, everybody nervous laughter for like five minutes straight, like, <laughs> please move on, right? But here's where it's really important for us to recognize the sharpness and the vividness of what she's describing is immediately followed by a warning, a warning. Because it's so graphic in detail, she immediately says to those who are not married, she gives a warning and she says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the third sacred longing for love. It's a longing for purity. She looks to those in the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, this is all of the virgins, those who are unwed, unmarried, and says, don't start the train unless you're ready to get it going down the track. Don't even start the engine. Don't get it going. Don't start this whole experience that I've just been talking about that is good and rightly and godly in marriage. Don't even get it going. Uh, there was a YouTuber, an influencer years ago. Uh, some of my students would wear these shirts. I thought it was hilarious. Let me show this picture up here. Yes, virginity rocks. And I couldn't believe this YouTuber was, was all about this, but he actually understood the harm and damage that can come when uncommitted people are just casually engaging in sexual immorality. And, and here's what's important for you guys in here to know. If you are unwed, unmarried, and a virgin, here's what you need to wait for is the right person and the right moment. The right person is someone who has the character that we've been talking about for weeks, who has the commitment that we've been talking about. And the right moment is when you are actually married. And we're gonna see that, that there are, we see their wedding Okay, in the, in the next few verses, and we're gonna see that. Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, 
but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Your heart can grow lovesick. That you would long to actually be married and be wed is, is good, but you should not stir up love. That is intimate, intimacy and passion, unless it's in the proper context of marriage. That's where God has blessed it. That's where God has celebrated it. That's where this entire book celebrates it is within marriage. And we see that followed by a wedding celebration, okay? But really quickly, let's just talk about this. If you're living together and you're not married, it's not God honoring. And, and so I wanna just press on this a little bit here. We see within this hope deferred, uh, we see within this not stirring things up that just shouldn't be stirring up, that there would be many people in our culture today who would condone and approve of sleeping together or living together before they're married. Notice, verse five in the warning comes before the wedding. You wanna be intimate? You wanna experience passion? You wanna actually enjoy the blessing of sexual intimacy? Then get married. That comes before the wedding, okay? That's the warning. Pew Research put out these statistics, okay? Their study found two, two realities about cohabitating that, that I wanted us to understand. Number one, there is a larger share of adults that have cohabited than have been married. In 2002, 54% of adults had ever cohabited. Let's just say lived together. 54% of adults had lived together. 60% of adults had been married. In 2019, they found that that had flipped in our culture. It flipped. They found that 59% of adults were living together and only 50% were married. It literally flipped within a 12 year time span. Like one generation, boom, gone, why? Because when we commit ourselves to an institution like marriage, but we don't understand the commitment to the God who gave us the institution of marriage, we will begin to perform and practice things that we don't understand the reason behind. God has given us marriage as a blessing, but if you see marriage as something that's just a duty or that you have to do, you will not actually enter into that relationship because you will see all of the damage and the wreckage that's been done in marriages. A larger share of adults are living together than have been married. That has changed since, two, since the early 2000s. Here's another reality that they pointed out. Married adults have higher levels of relational satisfaction and trust than those simply living with a partner. Um, Pew Research is looking at this purely trying to figure out what's going on within marriages in America, okay? They're reporting higher levels of relational satisfaction and trust. When you, when you don't just live together, but you're actually married. But here's where I wanna push past that, okay? We can do all of that research and we can see that if you are a believer in Jesus, you would no doubt look at this and say, no duh, <laughs> no duh. That's because not, that's not how God has designed it. We're living together without commitment, okay? But here as a Christian, I wanna just press into this more. Marriage is not about your happiness, it's not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. It's about us looking more like Jesus. You don't get into marriage to make you happy. You get into marriage when you find the one whom your soul loves. You have a longing that is a good and godly longing that is met by, a, by someone who God has gifted you in this life. 
But the goal and the purpose of it is your maturity in Christ. That at the end of your life, you would be able to look at King Jesus and you would be able to say about your spouse, here is your servant. For me, Andrea. Here's Andrea, who is now more holy for me having been a part of her life because I saw her as my sister in Christ as much as my bride and I desired her perfection in Jesus. But if you don't see marriage that way and it's all about you, it's about your self-fulfillment, it's all about what it can bring to you, you will struggle in your marriage. Bottom line. Because you don't understand that marriage is about a reflection of the gospel of Jesus which is sacrificial at its foundation. Marriage points us once again, to the reality of Jesus' love for us. If you're living together or sleeping together with somebody who is not your spouse, I just did a little research that I didn't even need Pew to figure out for me. I just looked at the Bible, and here's what actually I found statistically speaking was pretty revealing. God says 100% of fornication is sin. 100% of the time. There are some young people today, and I know when I was younger, even at my Bible college, people would sleep together and they'd be like, we're married in God's eyes. That's trash. And they clearly have never read the book of the Song of Solomon. All of the warning that she gives in verse five comes before the wedding. And in this wedding, we need to recognize that there is beauty and power within a wedding ceremony. And that this isn't something that's just a new occurrence. This isn't something that just started recently in America. This weddings have happened since God gave Eve to Adam and Adam to Eve. That was the first wedding and they've happened ever since. And there's a responsibility that young couples have to allow others to actually be a part of that. When we look at this longing for intimacy, when we look at this longing for purity, there is a warning that goes into this because God has called us to actually recognize the community around us matters. There is a good and godly longing for a perfect wedding. And we see that come out in the last five verses. You may not, you may not even think this, but I want us to just think about this for a second. If you're thinking about having a wedding and having a perfect wedding and all this stuff, you wouldn't imagine how much God has to say about that day in this next passage. You wouldn't imagine it. But in all of the beautiful poetic language, we actually can draw out four elements in this desire and longing for a perfect wedding. So I'm gonna quickly run through these. Uh, We see, first of all, look at verse six. What is that coming up from the wilderness? She's seeing something coming out of the wilderness like columns of smoke. Okay, smoke and wilderness. This is temple language. It's poetic language. It's metaphorical language that actually looks back to God's presence with his people in the wilderness. And what is that all about? That's all about holiness. Again, it comes back to character. Solomon is gonna be coming towards his wedding ceremony and immediately she starts off with giving poetic language to talk about the holiness of the presence of her coming groom. That should automatically, for us guys, if you're engaged or you're dating, you should be focused on your holiness, okay? Best, next, we see that there's best men that surround. Says, behold, It's a litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men. The litter of Solomon in this wedding ceremony that they're describing here, this is one of those, it's a box. Pelenkin is what it's actually the technical term. 
If you imagine a, a guy who's sitting up on top of like a couch being carried around by men, there were 60 guards that were surrounding him as they came. He's coming with an entourage. And one of the coolest things for me to experience in doing weddings is getting to meet all, all of the groomsmen, the getting to meet the best men, right? But, but here's what we see. These best men are men who support the marriage. They hold Solomon up and they defend the marriage. All of the imagery here, they have swords on their thighs. They're experts in war. These are mighty men of Israel. These guys are ready to support and defend the marriage. One of the most disappointing things for me when I'm doing a ceremony is that I would know a godly young man who desires to do well and then I meet their groomsmen and they're a bunch of goons. They're just total goobers. I'm constantly having to tell them to be quiet, focus. If you've ever been a part of a ceremony like that before, it's frustrating. But this is a warning for you young men to just consider, who are you keeping company with? Who would you actually have stand by your side? Are they men of character who would support and defend your marriage? Think about that. Secondly, we see that there's best materials fitting for the day. It says, King Solomon made himself a carriage, the wood from Lebanon, posts were silver, seats of purple, the back of gold. All of this imagery is evoking, is, is really meant for us. It evokes the experience of having a wedding celebration and a party. It was prepared for, it was planned for, put all the best materials into that day. And I think just a you know, really interesting takeaway for us is getaway cars are biblical, all right? That's what I'm just gonna lay that out there for you this morning. He's coming in, he's got his boys around him, his entourage, everything is looking just super dapper, right? There is practical instruction for us, even in this poetry, about Solomon and what he's looking like as he comes. Best materials for the day isn't a determination of whether you're poor or rich and how much you can pour into it. It's just the fact that you made your wedding day special for your bride. Number three, best bridesmaids. It isn't just the dudes who need to be considered. It's also the gals. Verse 11 says, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon. She's calling her, all of the women, to actually look on Solomon, looking for support, looking for affirmation. Again, what he started off with was holiness, character. Gals, if you're thinking about who you want to stand next to you, you need to have their support in who you actually are marrying. Is he a guy that's gonna treat you well and be a godly man to encourage you in your life? Lastly, I think it's interesting that she actually has them look upon King Solomon, the crown that he was crowned with on his wedding, the heart of gladness, all of this imagery is talking about the entire celebration. And so, in all of the memories that she's asking them to just store up, I was like, yeah, pictures on your wedding day, totally biblical as well, all right? So if we're thinking about how, how we actually look at a wedding, I don't want any young people in here, right? Whether you're engaged or dating or not, to think that somehow you can begin to engage in sexual intimacy without recognizing wedding ceremonies are incredibly biblical. They're right here. And we see a lot of the elements that we experience today in a different culture, shadowed and echoed in our day and age today. For all of us, when we consider longing, you would long for a perfect wedding day. You would ultimately long for purity. You would long for intimacy. You would long for companionship. We see all the different ways that we're called to actually hold up this marriage bed in high honor, but there is a desire and a longing that again stands behind all of these longings that we would desire in our lives is not only just a longing for the immediacy of companionship and intimacy and relationship now, but ultimately our souls all long for the coming of our King Jesus. That's what all of us are longing for, is his return, his presence. Paul says that the day of the Lord is gonna come like a thief in the night. 
And the encouragement for all of us is to be ready when he comes. And when he does come, here's a glorious truth for all of us who will be found in him, all of our longings, all of our yearnings that have gone unsatisfied and unmet in this life will be fully satisfied in him. There's no more fear, no more anxiety, no more separation, no more frustration. All of those things will go away. No pressure or fear or failure. We will experience this perfect marriage and this perfect intimacy when Christ comes. We will have all of our longings fulfilled and all of our desires met. This is what we point forward to and look forward to. And this is actually what is described by the Apostle John in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, when he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And an angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When we consider the longings we have, we have here a picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb where we will be gathered together with all the saints through all generations and celebrate the fact that all of our longings are satisfied in him, our King, Jesus alone. All of that should be for us a future picture of glory that gives us hope in this life to work on those longings we have that we desire to be met in this life. So as you consider the longings you have in your relationships, be honest with yourself, be honest with God, and be honest with those who are in living life with you, spouse, those around you to hold you accountable. We ultimately desire for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we say thank you. Thank you, Lord, that there is a day that will come when all of our longings will be satisfied, when all of our desires for intimacy, companionship, and affection Lord, will ultimately be met by your perfect and unfailing love that will endure forever and ever. Lord, I pray for those in our church, Lord, who are struggling and wrestling with loneliness, Lord, whether it's in their singleness or it's in their marriage. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a place where they're able to process, work through, come together in order that you would be glorified and that they would experience the good that you've intended for them. Lord, I thank you for your word which guides us in how we can have these longings satisfied in you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.